On freight markets, we have the weekly market update. March volumes arrive on schedule. Capacity remains loose. The brokers are saying that ample capacity is readily absorbing the contracted volume uptick. FreightWaves releases Venomics miles per gallon index in Sonar. And we have a radio recap, quotables from FreightWaves' second show. For the other headlines of the week, Teamster locals no votes throw wrench into UPS's contract implementation. Cost blowouts cause profits to plunge at CMA CGM. Regulatory hurdles threaten to slow blockchain development in the U.S. And Harris Williams bankers explain why 3PL M&A will stay hot in 2019. I'm JP. And I'm Chad. And we discuss all these issues and more on this week's episode of What the Truck. Redwood Logistics is one of the nation's fastest growing logistics providers fueled by industry leading technology and a passionate team of experts from multimodal brokerage and dedicated truckload to third-party logistics and TMS consulting, implementation, and integration. Redwood Logistics delivers next-generation solutions for its clients and much more than a truckload. And we are visited by Daniel Pickett, Chief Data Scientist. Uh, Pickett, great to have you on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Well, it sounds like it. And you know what? It only took 57 episodes to bring you on. (laughs) I'm, I'm an acquired taste. <laughs> Speaking of acquired tastes, uh, you've acquired a taste for Founders uh, Brewery beers. Yeah. And you recently went up there. Yeah, I got to go to uh, speak at a supply chain conference in uh, Grand Rapids and went down to see the good people at Founders uh, Brewing uh, and really enjoyed the Canadian breakfast stout, which we happen to have here uh, locally. So wow. limited release. It's a uh, 11.6 ABV uh Imperial Stout with chocolate, coffee, and maple syrup. That's where you get the Canadian. Okay, then. And what did you pour for us, Chad? Uh, Well, from the, you know, the... um the tap house over there at uh, at Freight Alley, we have transmigration from Orpheus. Oh, my gracious, transmigration. Awesome. Uh, should we say what the ABV is? Uh, let's, let's, Just keep curious in mind. listeners can look it up on their own. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, let's get into it. Well, you know what? So I have a question for you guys, and I don't know if, if, but you know, like guys, year over year, remember what a hot year 2018 was with, with just, well, everything. We just talked about the, the aberrant nature of it. Well, with, with, you know, rates as low as they are right now, with tender rejections as low as they are right now, like, you know, how would you compare? What do you think? How do you think right now? volumes compare year over year to last year? I mean, yeah, if in a low rate environment, low tender rejection environment, you would assume that that's being caused by low volumes, but it's really not. I asked the wrong guy. Yeah, no, I, I, I think JP nailed it on the head. Um, the other thing you've got to remember is that a lot of your big carriers got really healthy uh, contract rate increases last year, and, yep. and that sort of calls this kind of wild disruption in 2018. Yeah. Um, you so, guys so you do have kind the of the answer. same volumes, and, and your big carriers are sticking to their contracts a lot more than they did this time last year. Volume's actually slightly higher right now, which I think would be a surprise to your to our, you know, well, maybe even our well-informed audience. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be a surprise just because, uh, especially if you're on the asset side, right? Like if, if you're an owner-operator, it probably feels like a down cycle already in the freight markets uh, just because 
you know, the spot markets have been a little bit starved of freight. Um, there's a lot of capacity that yep. uh, small and mid-sized carriers added. I've seen numbers quoted as much as 11% over the course, you know, basically over the last 18 months. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's supply and demand are definitely imbalanced. Um, One thing uh, that is interesting is that last year, uh, you know, as a result of uh, the the high volumes, that 5.4% of the total market volume, uh, at least in April, uh, was coming out of Los Angeles and Ontario, those two very large uh, markets. But uh, this year, it's actually been 8%. It's been really carrying things. Yeah. And if you look at inbound, um, the biggest sort of growth mark inbound growth markets on the West Coast are sort of secondary warehouse districts like you know Stockton, Modesto, Phoenix, Fresno. It's a lot. It's interesting because I mean our sort of operating thesis is that the warehouses in Ontario and LA kind of got clogged with pull forward freight from the tariffs. Right. That yep. has to be digested and pushed into the network and it's created a flurry of regional moves that are kind of artificially driving national volumes higher and Um, and it's it's and it's kind of amazing to me because you know a lot of people talk about okay the what are the tariffs actually doing to the economy how bad is it you know we're still having these huge you know um trade uh deficits with china you know so how much is it actually affecting but one of, the, one of the things that has amazed me is the extent to which the tariffs have disrupted normal freight patterns and effectively decoupled freight volume from GDP. Yeah. 20, 2018 was a really strange year. And, and a lot of that, you know, early you had both uh, shippers that got kind of burned in 2017. The end of 2017 was really brutal for shippers as, as you, you know, your tender reject, your, your routing guides fell apart. Everybody went to spot. Um, and that's when we got everybody missed their earnings because transportation costs, you know, doubled or went up 30 percent. So in 2018, not only do you have tariff uh, kind of fears that, like, we better get it kind of moved and fill the warehouses up before we have to pay 25 percent on top. But you also had a bunch of shippers that got burned at the end of 2017. And everybody, like, herd mentality had the same idea. I'm, I'm going to move things early this year. And summer 2018 was just – it was hot. It was long. It, it it really was just an incredible uh, year for some of those you know smaller guys running the spot market. Yeah, everybody was re- responding to the capacity crunch, such as we were covering for the first half of the year. But you know what? One thing that's an interesting thing happening right now is that over the past two weeks, uh, that West Coast uh, activity uh, the, it seems to be dropping, and it's dropped twenty one percent. Uh, according to the, to our sonar data, so if that's still yeah, the Chinese New Year plays into it, it's it's over. Chinese New Year plays into it, but there are also, I mean, that's kind of a seasonal issue that always makes um, Q1 comps kind of wonky because it, it's a moving day. Yeah, it moves relative to our calendar. Yeah. But um, I, I mean, if you look at Chinese PMI, it's also falling apart. If you look at um, container rates from China to the West Coast, China to the East Coast. They're you know fair you know taking a hard turn down as well. So I mean, I do think that uh, the demand side is a little bit softer than it looks. Um, okay. If, if you're if you're if, if you're a regional carrier in California, demand probably still f- feels feels uh, strong. 
but I think that that there's there's an end in sight to that. Yeah, and don't forget that there's there's a little bit of a spillover effect from what what's really been weak coming out of China is Europe much more so than us, and and you know there's just there's a lot of increased capacity there because uh, the, the volumes to Europe um, are, are suffering you know more so than the volumes. To the yeah, US. what what I mean. Um, Europe's in a pretty bad place right now. I mean, it's just today, Draghi said that they're going back into quantitative easing. They, what were they projecting for GDP growth for the European Union? Like 0.1%? Yeah, it's not point, good. It's flat. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're pulling all of the, um, you, know, you know, less effective every time they do it, levers that they can. One of the things about um, how, though, we are in a somewhat balanced market and that things may be trending towards tightening a little bit with the capacity is, I believe last week we reported that 82 of the 135 markets that we cover, uh, you know, were were at, you know, high volumes. Uh, and now it's, uh, I mean, they've, they've begun to increase, you know, ba- basically this week we're reporting 75 of the 135. So, uh, you know, if I think those volumes remain elevated, that, you know, we will begin to see things, capacity tighten in earnest, and maybe uh, some tender rejections and rates go up. But I don't know. Yeah. I, His, I mean, so every year since 2015, spot rates bottomed at some point in February. Um, in theory, they should go up. I mean... If you're talking about 75 markets out of 135 are having increasing volumes and, and what like 65 aren't or something like that like that feels almost like treading water in a way fairly balanced yeah so um, we'll, we'll see we'll see i mean i i think we're not that far away from the bust in the typical boom and bust freight cycle and you know unfortunately you know, there's there are going to be carriers who exit the market, and capacity will will contract just because you know the, the spot rates in a, on a lot of major lanes are not really um, you know pro- sustainable or profitable on, on the carrier side. And speaking of um, you know different perspectives, you covered uh, from a broker's p- point of view. Uh, you know, they're they're saying similar to what we just said that you know there is. Uh, ample capacity out there, but but w- w- what else from their point of view um, are they looking at? What what's the kind of a broker's perspective, such as you were writing about JP? Um, well, you know, I think that there are really two kinds of brokers. There are small brokers who stick to the spot market and just do that, and then there are brokers who are pursuing contract freight, um, you know, large accounts with shippers, and so th- okay. those those people are aggressively. They're actually, you know, um, I think in a really good position right now because they're, you know, we've all been, of them. Well, the, the, the people like Echo, people like Arrive, people like Redwood, people that are big enough and have the scale to, uh, you know, convince a large shipper that they have a network that can service their freight. Because essentially, what's happened is with the rise in um, driver wages. Uh, yeah, basically, the asset-based carriers have to ask for low to mid single-digit contract rate increases. But if you're if you're a three PL and your cost is the spot market, then you can actually undercut asset-based carriers and aggressively pursue contract volume. And every pretty much all the brokers I've talked to have said that 2019 will be more biased toward contract volumes than spot volumes. That's what they're doing, 
and you know, uh, you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, I, I think I think a lot of it's interesting. I mean, a lot of shippers are realizing that three, even with factoring in a fifteen percent or a twenty percent three PL gross margin, they can still save money um, with a three PL versus an asset based carrier. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. <clears throat> You've also got to remember though that that a a large enterprise carrier absolutely has a lower per mile cost than a small uh, independent OO. And um, you know, I don't, all, all I don't in, know. All I, in. Think, I, I think that's true. I, I do think that's true. So um, you think there is a certain economy of scale in, in trucking? Yeah, yeah th- there is. Um, I mean, they get better deals on fuel. They get better better deals on insurance. They, they get better deals on the equipment itself. Um, so, so yeah, they, they absolutely can can survive at lower rates longer than a small carrier can. But, but what you see with a lot of these contracts is you're right. You see the brokers getting into the routing guide as as a contract, yep. and um, you know you you might see shippers kind of lean on the brokers during softer times when spot is low, and and but still keep some contract carriers in their routing guide for kind of that surge and in, in, in middle of the year and end of the year. Yeah, and I think the past the past you know eighteen months has really like. I think that you know, three PLs have performed well, proved their value to shippers, um, and the you know shippers are realizing that they want to have options, they want to be flexible, they want to have different kinds of solutions in different kinds of situations, and no, and everyone, you know, few people have much confidence in you know, forecasting what freight markets are going to do, and so you know, I, I, having a three PL in your routing guide is almost. You know, being being conservative and prudent at this point. One of the things that we are trying to uh, bring to our What the Truck listeners each and every week is, you know, a weekly market playbook. And one of the, uh, you know, one of the ways that we can uh, help track that, you know, through our sonar data is, you know, looking at fixed costs, uh, operational things. And, you know, this, this, this past week we've been announcing that we have introduced this V-nomics uh, data uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it tracks one of the major fixed costs of, of a carrier, about five to, to fuel is about miles per gallon, about five to nine percent of the uh, fixed cost, I guess. I, I, I think that's right. I'd call it a variable cost because, you know, more miles you do, the more fuel you're going to buy. Oh, that right. Fuel uh, being a fixed cost. but f- Fuel is, it is a cost. It's absolutely a cost. <laughs> oh, whether it's fixed <laughs> yeah. or not, huh? A fixed cost, okay. is, I would say, is your office. You know, maybe your, your oh. number of trucks is kind of a stepwise, but uh, but yeah, fuel, huh. you're, more miles I've you run, more fuel you're going to buy. Always generally. thought of it as a fixed but cost. But no, what, what Venomics is, is really doing is it is a fuel efficiency coaching service, and um you know, it, it really is there to help drivers, you know, incentivize them, gamify, and, and even reward them for doing behavior that is going to improve their mileage. Because, you know, if you're going to do some six-digit number of miles per year, uh, you know, that's a lot of pennies uh, if you can save pennies at the pump. So um, what they, a, they do a really yeah. good job. And, and, yeah, now we're taking that data and kind of reporting at the local market level what what does um, – the mileage per gallon look like in that. In and that and I'm I don't know about JP. I'm curious. I am curious about like how you guys literally you know take that data in and contextualize it and stuff. But even before I ask that we ask that question, I'm curious like when when how much have you been able to look at this data? Like are there surprises? Are there like ways in which if you look at this data that like miles per gallon are sometimes surprisingly not as efficient as you might 
might think, or surprisingly more efficient depending on when the the data is, you know, what day of the week it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's certainly true. I mean, weather drives it a lot. Okay. Um, So, you know, the biggest, the the two biggest things that drive kind of day-to-day change are going to be weather and then day of week. Um, On weekends, you don't have traffic. You know, there's just not as much traffic on a weekend. And, and mileage is, you know, could be, a, you know, a lot you could get it, you could get, get it. Yeah. You could get an extra, uh, you know, maybe half a mile or something uh, per gallon out, out of your economy. Um, whereas on weekdays, you know, you're, you're going to suffer because you're sitting in more traffic and, and you're doing deliveries. You're sitting at docks. So um, like, so like Monday morning, Los Angeles during a downpour. Miserable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Snowstorm would be worse. Um, Snowstorms are really the worst. Really. Um, so this is what we mean by variables, right? Um, and of course, yeah. And, and the, obviously it's a variable cost because the price of diesel goes up and down. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true, too. Uh, I Because well, well, I was surprised, actually, when I looked at some of the data this past week uh, 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 in Atlanta. It was like miles per gallon efficiency went down surprisingly on a Sunday. And we one one of us, uh, I think it was Zach, was his one of his explanations was that well, a lot of trucks sit and idle and park a lot on yeah, Sundays. Yeah, and, and potentially so that that, could, that is an issue, you know. So Atlanta, great place to be on Monday morning. So you could have a lot of trucks arriving and idling. So th- there are kind of these <laughs> interesting trends in each market, and yeah. you know we talked about the traffic problem. Um, LA doesn't get uh, snow really, so we, you know you can, but you can compare LA to other places that don't get snow like El Paso. El Paso doesn't have nearly the traffic it does. So El Paso's weekday to weekend spread, very small. L.A.'s weekday to weekend spread, very, very huge. So I'm, I'm curious, too, about um, sort of like geography or maybe topography. Yeah, yeah. Does, a, does a more mountainous area, yeah. you know, hurt fuel economy? Yeah, what does that it, look it like? It does. It, it absolutely does. Um, you, you know, and so you're, as you get into kind of the areas that have no flat roads anywhere, um, you will see a, you know, a mile penalty or maybe sometimes more. Interesting. Crosswinds can be brutal too. I, I guess these things are somewhat obvious. Crosswinds, headwinds. Um, it's it's really interesting. Um, what about like, do we have any sense of how this has changed over time? Um, I mean, in theory, right, the government wants trucks to be more fuel efficient you know, each year. Right, right. And, and and you do have regulations to that effect. But 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 the, sorry to interrupt you, but no, one no of the other sort of um, regulatory uh, priorities has to do with emissions, right. which actually can sort of there's there's a sort of a balancing act between emissions and your your nitrates and, and all that kind of thing versus um, MPGs. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you know, you're going to get what you measure. And so do you measure things at the per mile? Do you measure things at the per gallon? And this is sort of where your refiners, mm. your OEMs can kind of start to play games with with how you measure those regulations. Because, um, you know, while the trucks can, in their EPA tests, get better mileage, the fuel mix that they're actually buying at the mm. at the truck stop uh, may have, you know, may, may be blended slightly differently. You're, you're going to put the, uh, you know, the most favorable thing in when you have to go do the EPA testing. But um, what's actually available out there at the pumps very different, and it differs by state too. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, Gaso- then, gasoline is not a, or, or I'm sorry, diesel is not a, a. It's more of a cocktail than it is a, a molecule that is homogeneous across the country. A Molotov cocktail. <laughs> I don't um, know. Yeah. Um, but then also, I would think that like this, the skill of the driver 
it has a massive effect on MPGs. I mean, I, yes, I follow, it absolutely does. I follow certain uh, drivers on LinkedIn and Facebook who regularly post about their MPGs, and you know they they might have like kind of a basic aerodynamic package on their trailer. They have a new truck. They have sort of pedal coaching software that gives positive feedback to the you know their their controls of, of the truck itself. Right and. I mean, some some of these guys are able to achieve, you know, ten MPGs like on a, a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, that that's really impressive. And and every once in a while, we'll see you know a, a trip that's like uh, some of our some of our highest mileage trips ever. It's on Christmas Day. They're rolling down a mountain bobtail to get home. And <laughs> somebody somebody had a fourteen mile a gallon trip. Oh my god. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, it's one right. of the, it's also that uh, you point that out, JP. It's one of those interesting aspects of you know, like this is where this is the new era of trucking. This is what can make trucking cool and fun. It is nerding out in a sense on the data, you know, helping the data increase your efficiencies. And you know, one of the things, uh, Pickett, that we, we we have you here, and you are a data scientist. You've been here from the beginning. You've put together this team. You guys have been bringing in. All of these data points, man, as we have just developed this uh, Sonar SaaS platform, is there a way for you to nerd out uh, briefly in an interesting way for our audience? Like, what's it like bringing in this kind of data? And working with your team and asking questions and even trying to brainstorm and figure out, like, which questions should we be asking of this Ooh, data Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you get a data set that's fairly straightforward, um, but but really most of our data sets, okay. they, they can be used for multiple things. And so you can start to figure out, like we've been talking about miles per gallon, what that data coming in looks like is they had an engine start, they had an engine off, here's how many miles per gallon, here, here's, here's how many miles were consumed, here's, uh, or here's how many gallons were consumed, here's how many miles were traveled, here's the start and end point. Um, but then you can start to from that, see things like volume, compare that to things like weather, um, look at I see. you know the, the, the cities they were in, the road segments they traveled on, find specific road segments that consistently punish mileage. So even the, and even like detention times. Uh, yeah, um, you know you could with detention. I mean, times, if you're running, the, yeah, if you're yeah, running, yeah, if you've the got truck. full telematics, then then yeah, detention time is. If the truck is running, is going to so in it. that yep. case, is it is it not even just about scraping and cleaning as so much as we say we, we say, but is it also like addition? Is it like you have to kind of write? Yeah, I mean, and, I mean, you think uh-huh. about the raw data that comes in is almost like a pantry full of ingredients, and and hmm. and, and you say, well, what are we what are we going to cook today? <laughs> well, what do we have in the pantry? <laughs> um, so so you kind of go in there and and. Um, there's, you know, interesting. Unfortunately, we don't have a huge cookbook that says, "Ah, do this." So we'll kind of, um, okay. you know, we'll kind of work with the market experts that that are, you know, they're they're publishing articles on freight waves, they're writing the daily uh, pickup stuff, and and kind of figure out what are they hearing, what do they think is interesting, what questions do they have, you know, why is this market heating up, or or how, you know, how are people going to optimize their network, um, you know, and then you kind of go into the pantry and say, what ingredients are here, what ingredients do we wish we have, and we'll kind of send our data acquisition group out to say. See if they can source new ingredients for us. So, wow, yeah, that's interesting. And that that was like a, a bit of a nerding out without getting too granular, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would even ask you yeah. to just to follow up. Like, what kinds of um, conversations have you been having with your team this week? What, what are you guys working on? Great question. Um, so, yeah. so uh, the the miles per gallon stuff is, has we've continued to kind of follow up on that because one thing that was bugged us is is that. Uh, 
we know that new trucks are supposedly more fuel efficient, but when we look at the last three years, we see that the average mileage has gone down each of the last three years. That that should not happen. You know, that's that's the most. Uh, huh. When you get a result that you're like, this is not what I expected, then there's kind of a peel back the layers of the onion game that happens. So, that's been one that's been big this week. Um, right. Now, that could have we, to do we, with sample size and the way that it's changing. It, it could, could be just, um, fuel blend. Um, 2018 was one of the wettest years we've ever had. Interesting. Running through water. I don't know if you've ever tried running through ankle-deep water at the beach. It's a lot harder than running on pavement. Oh, um, yeah. It's one of the funnest things to do at the yeah, beach. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I would assume that, like, if the road is wet, that reduces traction by a certain amount, which— And increases drag, yeah. 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 Reduces traction and— yeah, And, and it's ma- makes your truck have to work harder to travel the same distance. Yes, absolutely. Um, interest- and, and, I mean, certainly in Chattanooga, 2018 was drenched. Yeah. Yeah, it's been very wet lately as well. But, but yeah, so so weather plays a part. You know, the the mix of diesel that's happening plays a part. Um, like you said, sample size. Um, the, these Venomics guys, they're they're, you know, they're, they're actually doing well. And um, so, the, yeah, so, the, yeah, so the, new the, people come in and kind of is, as the sample size grows, and you know, it it, it it's sort of it should it should re- like approach the mean of the entire industry. And, and yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of what you see is that when somebody enters the sample, they improve to a point and then, you know, you've hit kind of the mechanical limits limits of what the the vehicle can achieve. But um that's really interesting. Yeah. Um and it's it's so cool that you you have I mean, how many people are you guys up to now? Um there's uh almost 20 on on the data team now, I think if you uh if you include everybody that does some sort of engineering or science or research or yeah. Wow. Lots yeah. of scrubbing to wow. do. Yeah, yeah. People that clean, move, machine learning, classical statistics. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, Chad, uh, you, you just did the second week of Freight Waves Radio on um, the Sirius XM Road Dog Trucking Channel. Um, you know, there's a... I don't know. I, I was on it for just a, a little minute, uh, you know, talking shit about And it was Tesla. a very entertaining part, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that, that's always fun. And it's, you know, there's a, a rich uh, data set for to work from there, too. It's <laughs> a lot of material. Yeah. A lot of material. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's about Tesla um, and Elon Musk. Yes. But, those were the early days of What the Truck, man. Right? We yeah. enjoyed going back and forth on that. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, we, we just to let our audience know that, you know, uh, Sirius XM has has in fact picked us up on the uh, Road Dog Channel 146. Uh, man, they do. They have some great content on there all the time, and we are just happy to be a part. Um, and just wanted to like, you know, we are there uh, coming coming live to you on Saturdays from three to five. It also plays at other times of of the week if you can't catch it then. But if you if you want if you have SiriusXM, check us out. We uh, we talk to all kinds of um, cool people. Uh, and uh, this coming week, you know, we'll you know we're going to be talking about. You know, besides like this, this content is unique because we really hit, you know, the the headlines where we work. We focus on headlines and like people, people been, are calling in. You're talking to everyone. Well, no, like, I mean, here on What oh. the Truck, we cover these headlines, right? Yes, so what's yeah. different about, about um, you know, yeah, the, the radio show from 3 to 5 is we, we do. We bring in all, all kinds of market experts from all around the industry. We do. We have these conversations. You talk to, you talk to everyone from, like, 
transportation equities analysts to drivers. To uh, yes, we do. Like and on the same show. That's that's. <laughs> incre- I mean, it's it's so cool. Right. Like it is unique it content like for what's on. So many different perspectives on the industry. Uh, like you know, we had uh, David Hall, uh, you know, um, partner at uh, you know with the Steve Case Group and the Rise of the Rest uh, Group the and venture capitalists. He uh, he was talking about like last week. He was talking about there's you know really new technologies that are coming along, and he said one of the big things um, that we're looking at right now is just that there's just there's this major confluence of major trends right now, and you know for because you're seeing this powerful consumer demands for goods uh, just fall on people's doorsteps right now, right. and you're also seeing a lot of pressure that's being put on the traditional methods. And then he was like, "This is exciting to VC." Uh, places because you've got these new uh, emergent technologies um, in autonomous transportation uh, and that it's, you know, the industry is becoming data driven. And I just, you know, wanted to focus on the data aspect here as we have Daniel Pickett on with us today, (laughs) (laughs) our chief data scientist. Uh, And it's just, uh, it's exciting. You know, by the way, just although we we will be having... um, uh, on the show to on uh, tomorrow, will Saturday from three to five, we will have Tim Hines of Stay Metrics uh, talking about what what keeps drivers working for their company. Will O'Donnell of Pro, Prologis talking about current technology trends, and from Business Insider Rachel Premark talking about some oh, issues. Premack, yeah. Oh, Premack, yes, thank writer. you. Uh, and she will be talking about some of the uh, issues in the industry that have caught her eye of, of you know, recently. Uh, so, so that's, you know, just some exciting stuff happening. What are some other cool headlines, man, of the week that we are yeah, going to be covering um, well, here? Well, you know, I think we have to talk about Mark Solomon's article about all of the infighting among the UPS Teamsters. He He's... Is it that time of year? Again? It feels like a, <laughs> no, it's, like a, it's actually not. It's... It's they're still fighting about the contract that was kind of um, approved over the objection of the membership um, last summer. Right. Yeah. Um, let, give us some context, JB, Solomon, because if you literally read, if you don't know much about this and you try to read this art, it is I confusing. Think it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's convoluted. I mean, labor negotiations and union politics are, you know, notoriously Byzantine and difficult to, you know, follow if you're not, you know, kind of a. The percentage of votes and which teamsters working against which teamsters. I just wanted to say, yeah. just, I just wanted to plug Solomon really quickly, though. He's yeah. he's lived in Atlanta for decades. He is extremely plugged into UPS, um, both on the corporate side and the labor side. He, I think that he is probably one of the best riders on, kind of the, UPS, USPS, FedEx, XPO, Amazon, kind of. Uh, what tetrarchy? Yeah, that, that dance that's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, he, we are he, lucky to have him on. He, it is great coverage. He has the the best sources of pretty much anyone in transportation media on on that sort of the, the evolution of parcel delivery and and that kind of thing, sort of you know global logistics. Um, but yeah, it, what it comes down to is that there was a very controversial provision in the the labor. the labor contract that would establish two tiers of compensation for drivers based on seniority with senior drivers getting paid $6 an hour more than junior drivers 
on that was that that was voted in October. 50, so fifty four percent of the membership voted against it, but the the Teamster leadership approved it anyway. Um, and they were able to get away with it uh, because there's a, a loophole, loophole saying that like if less than half of the membership votes, then they can essentially approve anything they want. <laughs> they didn't have a quorum. <laughs> exactly. And so this is what I mean about how it can get complicated. So there's really been a fast. lot of blowback. There's actually a splinter group inside the Teamsters called the TDU, the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, that are it's sort of like membership, you know, grassroots membership led. That's obviously, you know, I would think to the left of the official Teamsters stance. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's put. That's you know, basically putting, and and, and I think, but. You know, to the left might might be the wrong way of putting it. I mean, I think they probably have a legitimate critique of the opacity of Teamster leadership decision making, right? Sure. sure. Um, and you know, we can. I mean, we could go into the history of the Teamsters, but that's neither here, that's neither here nor there. Um, the so a, a large, very large Detroit local and a very large sort of uh, was it Central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania um, local. And overwhelmingly rejected the riders and the settlements that were attached to the last contract. Essentially, essentially the, the contract that was approved in you know something June or July of 2018 still has not been implemented because of the delay of these riders. And the play here now is that the TDU is trying to stir up so much um, opposition to it that and, and essentially force a renegotiation. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If so you, the, if you could follow all that, I mean, they, they all we uh, UPS they they almost went on strike, and then UPS was able to strike a deal uh, that that did not you know lead to major disruptions right into the retail season, and I guess this is what is happening and continuing to go on. It would be yeah, apparently there's a delay after negotiations are ratified in which it would take a while to see these settlements and now they're delaying them further. Yeah. And the, the automakers unions, you know, went to these kind of two tier structures, um, you know, d- during the last kind of auto uh, crisis. And, and, you know, there were people that said it saved us. And there were people that said it was a slippery slope that, that just put a lot of power, uh, you know, kind of, kind of showed the, uh, you know, the, the corporations that we will blink at a certain level. And so, Right, I, I can understand the opposition, e- even from people that might have been in the senior class. Said, you know, it, it's a slippery slope to kind of start doing these two tier structures. Well, yeah, because then all of a sudden, uh-huh. you know, corporate wants the union to ha- have a different mix of junior and senior people. Exactly, and, and you know, exactly. we'll leave that up to you to figure out how to achieve it. But yep, and then we ratchet up how many years it takes to become a senior. You know, or what, yeah. what the grandfather in period is. And I think the you know the 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 two tier structure is a uh, you know nod in the direction of the pressure that everyone is under with e commerce and the twenty four seven delivery cycle, such as it's developing. Well, and I think I think if you think about the market forces that are putting UPS under pressure, most people you know on CNBC you know, compare them to the most comparable other stock, FedEx, where you have a fleet of sort of independent contractor drivers. But I think right. the, the actual the actual emergent disrupting force is all of the sort of crowdsourced last mile delivery startups who are being paid far less than even UPS independent sure. contractors. Sure. And that's really, Good point. you know, that's, I think, 
really the force that will have to be reckoned with at the end of the day. Not to mention some of the some of the testing that Amazon and other e, uh, well, I was gonna e-commerce say, retailers are doing that, hey, we'll give you, you know, a dollar off your next order if you have it delivered to your office where 10 other people at your company are having packages delivered tomorrow. Yeah, you yeah. Know. And so it's, you know, yeah, exactly. And, and Amazon, you know, has been um, – has been disrupting LTL. They're, they're, they've assembled a you know, massive fleet of Sprinter vans. They're you know, clearly moving. Um, clearly, you know, I think they, they want to be the largest LTL carrier in North America, if not the world. Um, and you know, we'll see how that works. Potentially. I, I think they're also, in some ways, cherry-picking. <clears throat> you know, they, they've done a really good job of knowing which loads they can, you know, which last-mile pa- parcels they can deliver cheaper than what they're being charged by yeah, all the all their uh, potential carriers, and then which ones they cannot deliver for the cost they're being charged, and, and yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah, and and yeah. I think I think that the you know this is what happened with XPO the the people they were using for postal injection, which is pretty easy to do, right? Postal injection is like we do the hard, you know, we we do the easy part, the long distance part, the 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 part that takes the post office so much time to accomplish. We do that really fast, and then we dump all the the pallet. At the local post office, let them do the really expensive, labor-intensive, yeah, difficult sort part in the last mile and, of the last yeah, and dealing with oh, not home, but I need a signature. That's, yeah. that's expensive, right? Um, so they it, it made sense for um, Amazon to grab that. They'll they'll continue to do more of that. I think the only reason they didn't take all of that business away from XPO is because about a third of it was committed to you know sort of long-term contracts that they couldn't really get out of without a you know, major lawsuit. So it. This whole space continues to evolve, and I think when you think when you think about a labor dispute at UPS, it's not just about okay, it's unions and it's and it's corporate management. It's it's a it's a dynamically changing industry with that you know where UPS's business model is being sort of outflanked in in by different parties, and so you know I, I, th- I think. You know, n- neither the management nor, you know, Teamsters leadership really knows how it's going to shake out in the end. Yeah, that's a mm-hmm. good that's a good observation. They're, they're fighting a war on a number of fronts. All right. Um. So yeah. So um, our next headline um is kind of, you know this, this is a pretty a fairly simple story, uh by John Gallagher, our Washington D.C. correspondent. About Jim Wilson, actually, it's a little maritime coverage. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, I was I was thinking about the, the regulatory blockchain stuff. Right. Yeah. That okay. he covered in the. Oh, we're, we're going to see me CGM. Yeah. This is interesting. I mean, it's. <laughs> it, it's yeah. Go, this story. Can I mean, you summarize it for us? It's a it's a story. Um, it's a song as old as time, uh, in some ways, right? It's. Uh, you know, a uh, how you can be profitable one one year and well, yes, yeah, not, a, not a, as much the next. A steamship liner, um, you know, in a you know, a st- steamship liner disappoints, you know, misses earnings. Like that's 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 really what it comes down to. <laughs> Are we sure like, that's news? And it's like, well, it's like, <laughs> and know, it's for a complex array of in twenty eighteen. In twenty eighteen, when you had surging container volume, uh, or sorry, surging container volumes and surging prices charged by those containers up to record levels. You, know, you would think it's like, you know, I actually read this in a, in a Stiefel report about a different company, but I love this phrase. <laughs> you know, the stars, the moon, the sun aligned for an amazing quarter, but the dog gave a homework. Um, <laughs> and that's basically what happened. Like, 
unfortunately, CMA CGM, the you know Marseille, French based container ship line, was exposed to the same ultimately exposed to the same market forces that it profited from, and all of the if you think about it in terms of like this is this is essentially like if you're if you're a truckload carrier, it's analogous to what a truckload carrier spends on purchase transportation. Right. Sure. So all of the all of the fees that they had to pay to charter extra ships, all of the fees they had to pay to, to the small feeder vessels that move, you know, small amounts of containers for them between minor markets so that they can be added on to the big mega ships. Um, the the fees that they had to pay to lease the container boxes themselves, all of those costs exploded. And yes, they had you know great revenue. But um, what was it? Some, a ninety-something percent drop in ninety-one, ninety-one percent drop in profitability in on, a single year. Yeah. Uh, revenue goes up eleven percent, costs go up thirteen percent. That's not yeah, that's yeah. not what you want to have happen. Yeah, and and you know it's mostly costs out of their control. Um, well, like I said, like they they they're ultimately exposed to mar- it's it's essentially it's the places in the the supply chain where they have to purchase services. We're also in a sort of a bottleneck, and there's there's scarcity, prices rose on them, you know, and which was cost for CMACGM, and yeah, it's it's it's, you know, it's 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 a variable, variable revenue, variable cost model, and they they're just like kind of serving a wave. Um, it's it's not it's not that surprising. I mean. If you you know there a few times I've dug into like Maersk's financials like their their full year reports and stuff and it's incredible the size of these enterprises and the razor thin margins that they operate on. Yep, it's a volume game. And well, another uh, another story that probably doesn't require uh, a whole lot of analysis, but it's just something that's been happening. Uh, and John Gallagher did cover this was. Uh, he was at an event, uh, the um, Blockchain Summit in Washington D.C., the fourth annual one, and uh, you know there were there was a discussion about basically what how in the U.S. the uh, blockchain is facing some regulatory hurdles, and so you know like what are the do, do you guys are you guys familiar with the story? What are the what are the hurdles that were we're facing in the U.S. Why are we under threat? With our development uh, from other countries, what's going on? Um, most of the, most political problems in the United States can be blamed on the inefficiency of Congress to provide <laughs> clarity, and so that's what's happened in this case. And essentially, four different regulatory bodies are fighting a jurisdictional turf war um, because Congress hasn't said who's going to be in charge of this. Yeah, um, a lot of the, a lot of the. Jockeying for who gets to have jurisdiction seems to revolve around digital asset holding. So, so yes. you know, so your your crypto coins, your like the TEU coin, that's going to be a a store of value more so than you know. We've heard about track and trace. We've heard about food right. safety instances. Right. I, I don't think it. You know, what's happening at the these regulatory? Are, yes, uh, these are digital yeah. assets. These are cryptocurrencies. Right. Uh, to- Which yeah, that's tokens w- that are supposed to have value, potentially accrue in value, or at least be linked to. 
other sorts of commodities. It's one of right. the um, that's one of the problems that are muddying the waters. There were uh, you know twenty seven different bills of the forty seven that were introduced into Congress. Twenty seven were just to fight the uh, illicit use of digital currency. Yeah. So I uh, so I mean which is that it's kind of weird because it's it's fighting the illicit use of digital currency. I mean it's like you know it's. It's a, if it, you make they, they haven't even gotten, gotten great at fighting the illicit use of paper currency. <laughs> right. no, no, they're horrible at that. God help them. They're horrible at that. Well, it's like right. you, you make something it's illegal to do, and it's illegal to do whether you're paying for it in U.S. dollars or Bitcoin or Monero yeah. or whatever. Um, but you know, and I think there actually may be an opportunity for regulators to attack things like Bitcoin in a way that you really can't with cash. Um, which is if you want to like do illicit things, like obviously you're going to use cash, right? Um, not not, yeah, bi- not yeah, Bitcoin, I mean, not Bitcoin, which after all is on a, you know like an immutable ledger. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you, but it, but it's on that immutable ledger. So right now, you know what I've always heard people say, I've never had it done, but they say, well, if we tested the dollar bills in your wallet, most of them would have traces of cocaine. Right. I'm not a cocaine user, but <laughs> surely surely I'm not going to get arrested for that. Are, are we going to get to a point where they say, ah? Mr. Pickett, you own a Bitcoin that at one time was used in a cocaine transaction. I mean, no, but what they can do is what, and this is how the FBI uses like you know wiretapping and cell phone surveillance. Right. And stuff, is they do network analysis. Sure. So, sure. so which wallets are interacting with whose other wallets? Right. And, and you other can, you patterns, can observe suspicious patterns. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you guys patterns and patterns and moving freight is kind of what we do. <laughs> you guys are kind of getting into the weeds a little yeah, bit. One of the, one of the things that. Uh, they were talking about at this conference, though, was to lay out a national action plan for blockchain, calling for the government to do a couple of different things. You know, demonstrate leadership through strong public support. That's going to be that's going to be at, a tough part at, <laughs> at the highest levels of government, uh, and also adopt a national action plan to coordinate all the stakeholders, as Perry Ann Boring. Uh, said and you know it's like basically they're trying to, they're laying out this approach they're asking for a light touch with the regulatory approach <laughs> good luck with that right i mean i think you know th- there are different moments where you see you, you can see change driven by either the white house or by congress or by a, you know a, s- a certain bureaucrat that opens the door i mean in, in for example and i'll give you two examples we've seen the fmcsa be all of a sudden, you know, you replace some key leadership. All of a sudden, they're very open to revising the hours of service. Um, you see Donald Trump very interested in drones and basically telling the the leadership of the Department of Transportation, Secretary Chow, to basically do an in-run around the FAA to open up, you know, drone licensing. So, I mean, there are ways that that the government, you know, a light bulb can go on in someone's head and they can – create like an open framework that encourages innovation. So um, you're saying there's a chance. A chance. <laughs> I, I okay. think they get bored with this one. And <laughs> well, on. somebody's got to try to do something to move the, move the ship ahead. Um, you guys might be able to tackle this. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Pickett, beside being chief data scientist, is also a CFA. He can talk you some financial stuff. And right now, we may need a little help with this one. Uh, it's, you know, the 
uh, you wrote this, JP. I did. Talking about, uh, well, Harris William bankers uh, explain why 3PL, I mean, talk about your industry jargon, dude, with this title. Why I know, 3PL I, I, okay. M&A will stay hot in 2019. Editor, Boy, do you sound smart. Our editors want us to keep every acronym out of our headlines. This one had two. But, I mean, if you wrote third-party logistics providers and mergers and acquisitions out in the, in the title, that would be, like, the entire thing. <laughs> um, how about, JP, since you wrote it, like, you know, give us the overview, what's the lead, and, the, and then let's ask uh, our market expert of sorts here what to make of some of it. Yeah, so basically these two investment bankers at Harris-Williams, which is an international investment bank and M&A advisory firm based in Richmond, Virginia, these two bankers um, in the transportation and logistics group, Jason Bass and Frank Mountcastle, offered to like brief me on, you know, essentially topics of my choice. Um, and yeah, it's a super I, cool article. I was mostly interested in three PL merger, you know, consolidation in the three PL space and what was driving it. And there were some you know questions I had about whether the hot activity of 2018 would continue in 2019, whether we would keep seeing brokerages by brokerages and you know that sort of thing um i was also interested in you know th there were things i didn't understand and i'll give you an example th things that were mysterious to me and I, maybe yeah. maybe Piggott can help like, give some color on this but yeah. there was a deal done last year in 2018 that really opened my eyes to like wow like something like something's going on in the m&a market for three pls that i don't really understand and it was we we heard um this wasn't disclosed obviously but publicly but we heard that global trans a large you know 3pl you know an acquisition hungry 3pl had put in a bid for transportation insight a smaller uh sort of tech centered uh brokerage that also had some you know a really interesting platform they put in a 13x ebit you know offer well, before well, let me back it's up healthy. a tiny bit here. Let me back up a tiny bit here. Overall, your your the article is saying that we should expect this year to be a hot one in mergers and acquisitions. Yes, yes. There, there are there are for brokerages. Yeah, there okay. are there are macroeconomic forces pushing both sellers and buyers to the market. And I think the question is the why as well as the how. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, and well, maybe we should start there. Um, so, you know, I can ask you, Pickett, what what makes what makes a three PL want to sell? Yeah, so I mean, you've got a number of forces in the market. I mean, at the right price, everything's for sale, JP. Um, <laughs> but, I didn't know that about you. <laughs> not my values. Funny. Um, but but essentially, you know, some of the three PLs, what they see happening is that. They, they built their business on on hard work and being scrappy and being able to, you know, know just a little bit more about everybody else in an opaque market. You know, build up a good Rolodex of, of trucks, be able to find, you know, find loads on load boards or, or, or get contracts. And, and, and sort of get close with carriers and know kind of what they want to do. Right, be right. Their, be their outside sales force. And you can almost think about those brokers as like, the you know, what real estate agents were in the pre-Zillow world, you know. Um, yeah. This explosion of data and visibility and transparency—it's not going to kill the broker, but it is going to radically change what kind of broker survives and you know what kind of volumes the best ones are going to do. So, you know, the, these guys that are forced to um, 
you know, kind of make the technology, make the, you know, the data investments in things like, uh, like our own sonar product, like DAT, like Truck Stop, like having a data science and statistics and forecasting team, you know, that's not cheap to do at grand scale. And so, you know, these guys that have built a business look at it and say, you know, hey, I can get a really great multiple for my business, or I can sink a bunch of capital and, you know, tr try to grow this thing even more over the next five and 10 years. Um, well, it's it hard because it's yeah. like, it's like, you know, and, and I think I think a lot of it has to do with people too, right? Like there are probably lots of brokerages, brokerage executives who can build a $75 million business sure. fairly quickly. Right. But getting to $300 million, you know, they don't know how to do. Yeah, yeah. Build, building a successful small business is a lot different than building a successful mid-cap or, or, you know, or, 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 you know, how do you – They've doubled every year up to 150 million, but they want to keep doubling every year. They they can't. Well, yeah. and I suppose too, what's specific to 3PLs or brokerages, uh, you know, that lends itself to to being hot in the merger and acquisition the reason area why, right I, now. I think the reason why buyers are interested in them is because there's a lot of private capital out there. Um, bro freight brokerage for a variety of reasons. Um, basically has a lot of potential for fast organic growth, yep. which people love. Yep. And it's easy to stick these businesses together. So it's not like yeah. it's not like combining different shoe companies or something that make fundamentally different products. Like they're offering a service that's similar. They might have different networks, they might have different slightly different business models, they might have different geographies, et cetera. But you know, in theory they can all be combined. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And and to get to that seventy five hundred million level you talked about is is it, it it is kind of a sales culture and a can you you know, can can you be that middleman and, and successfully book loads uh, culture? What gets you to the next level is starting to be better at that than the seventy five and hundred million dollar guys. Right, right. Yeah. Is is it's data and analytics, it is uh, getting the bigger contracts, you know, de developing lane density. So Well and you have to you, at a certain point, like even companies that bootstraps for the first like five years of their existence might want growth capital to be able to because the, now they're saying like okay to double revenue this year, I have to hire you know five hundred brokers this year before they know what they're doing. Yeah, before they they're making yeah, any money through your network and in your local area. It's it's before they're making you know, any money. Yeah, you like, may be you may be able to find a hundred really great brokers, but when you say okay now I've got to find five times that many, it's yeah, and so it's like, yeah. it's, so it's like you you're going to need cash to burn, to do to 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 do that to train to bring those people right. in, you know, churn a certain number of them and train the rest of them and wait for them to be profitable. Yes, yeah. I do. Um, but one of the things that really confused me about you know covering deals in the three PL space was we kept seeing private equity groups consistently outbid strategic buyers. And what I mean by a strategic buyer... Another you know, brokerage. <laughs> you're a strategic buyer when you're, when, you're, when you're either buying a business that's the same as your business or, you know, it's a sort of a... Vertical integration. A, an, like an, that, yeah. or, or an adjacent business that you want to yeah. get into um, versus a PE group, a private equity group, which is a, a financial sort of holder and, you know, transformer and value adder. They're not a... Yeah, they're, they're not a forever owner. They're a... Yeah, they're trying to buy you, scale you up, and sell you. Um, and that seems to be. And the sometimes play they just want right to buy now. you, lever you up, and sell you. In my, <laughs> in my in my bond days, we dealt with some PE firms. Yeah, yeah. And so, 
but I was kind of, kind of confused because it's like, how? Why are they able to consistently um, outbid strategic? So like, how are they paying more for these companies that that they're they're planning on selling them? Yeah. So how can you make a profit if you're always paying more I than mean, the, your, your, above your article, market? Your article did a great job explaining it. A strategic buyer has to make this deal make sense. This deal has to hit my hurdle rate, my my you know my expected return on capital. Whereas a PE firm is worried about the next deal. Yeah, and so can you you know the, the, they explained sort of how they you know can pay a, a premium for a platform quality company, pay less yeah. for other. Can you kind of explain I, I that mean, dynamic? They're they're going to be in it for a shorter time, and so your your PE guys who are essentially financial engineers, you know, look at how Coyote kind of did this massive roll up in brokerage and said, wow. These guys were buying guys at, you know, 8X, and then, you know, UPS took them out at more than that. So their first deal to just get into this market and to find a good management team, a good platform to to put extra assets on Good onto, technology, maybe. Good technology. Um, They're willing to pay a lot for that. Yeah, they, they don't have to. They, they, they can sell that initial piece for the same amount they bought it for if they can go out and gobble up a bunch of little guys cheaper, hang them on that platform, and get... Everybody at that, you know, 14x multiple, you know, if they're yeah, buying so little pieces so at the eight and seven, and you know, yeah. So the idea is that you buy like a 200 million dollar company at 14x EBIT, and then you add on a bunch, right? You at, double, at, double or triple their size at seven, eight x, and you drive, you drive guys. your, you sort of average down that entry multiple to where it turns out you've only paid, you know, nine yeah. or ten, yeah, and then. But what you've done is you've taken all these sort of mediocre, mid-sized brokerages that had no chance of scaling in you know today's modern competitive environment. You've given this awesome platform. You've increased the productivity of every broker. You've lowered their cost to acquire a customer. Yeah. They're covering more loads per day, et cetera, et cetera. And now you sell it for the same multiple, but it, the company's three times bigger. Right. That, yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly what they're doing. That it's is financial It's called scaling, right? Um, That's financial engineering. Yeah, but, but, it was, <laughs> but it was really cool, and I was really kind of like, you know, I, I don't have a financial background. I've, I've, you know, have some conversations with people in finance, um, but I was happy that these dudes from Harris Williams were like, sort of. I mean, they really, you know, explained the logic behind this weird. Yeah. So why, why you can slightly overpay for a, you know your, your initial foray yeah, into yeah. the industry. And, yeah. and, and, and yeah. I agree that uh, the article does uh, lay out a, a complex kind of array of factors in, in a, it's a fairly long article, but it does it, it does it quite clearly. Um, great job with that. Daniel Pickett, it is great to have you on. It's great to be here. Thanks uh, for having me. For, for maybe possibly the longest, the longest what the truck episode we've ever done well, in yeah, a single we're, take. We're, we're practicing. Hey. We're practicing for the for the hour long, right? Yeah, the, That's right, because soon we're going to be on the TV, <laughs> you know. And uh, so things are going to be great. But you know what? In order to get this under the hour, we better achieve our big deal, little deal. JP, which we have not done in three, count them, one, two, three consecutive weeks. So can we do it this time? Oh, God. Uh, and, and pick it one, one, last, one last thought. Man, it is, it's so great to have you on. And uh, may it not be 57 episodes until you're on again. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. I'll shoot for 54. <clears throat> okay, so... Take it away here, right? Yeah, you're you are. Yeah, um, 
I need You're my, asking me uh, first. Maersk CEO touts ease of booking ocean freight, putting freight forwarders on notice. Big deal or little deal? I think it's a little deal. I think you know pricing and load matching are the easily automated parts. Ops is, is much harder. REIT Colony Capital expands in industrial portfolio in $1.1 billion deal. Big deal? Little deal? It's a big absolute deal, a, bit, a little relative. I mean, it's you know industrial real estate, billion dollars. Okay, I mean, it's... That's cool. <laughs> Warning UPS about excessive capex and buybacks. Moody's downgrades outlook to negative. Big deal or little deal? Um, it's potentially a it's potentially a big deal. Um, UPS has to buy a lot of planes in the near future, and you know the market doesn't really like that. Gates, a 16Z invest in cobalt metals, AI startup hunting ethical cobalt. Big deal or little deal? It's a big deal. It's really interesting. It's uh, potentially a way to use machine learning to interpret geologic data to find um, untapped sources of cobalt ore. Regulators make it easier to upgrade commercial driver's licenses. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. The FMCSA continues to strategically reform burdensome regulations, and it's great to see. UPS creates executive role to promote diversity and women in business. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. It's a big company. And it's great to see progress in focusing on hiring women and having diversity in general. Change has to be intentional. New logistics center to benefit Alaska Air Cargo Transfer Program. Big deal or little deal? I'm going to say big deal. At least it will change the importance of the Anchorage Airport. It not only becomes a gas-and-go facility, but a true hub-and-spoke network. U.S. and China near deal, but it may not solve global trade problems. Big deal or little deal? (laughs) Little deal. I think that's the point of the story. Even though it may be a big deal for the markets if the trade war ends or subsides, it's going to be a process to solve the many problems that have now been created. Awesome. How do we do? Jonathan Smith, our new production uh, manager. Didn't time uh, the two minutes. (laughs) I I was eyeballing it. You barely missed it. We did? No, no, we, no, we actually it. started after. We might. Yeah, we, we started after. It wasn't, we didn't start you, on 15. Yeah, you, you started at. Yeah, you we'll started at. We'll find out soon enough. You started at 22 and finished I will at say, though, that one, <laughs> one of the funniest memes on financial Twitter is stocks rally on trade deal hopes. Like, because there's a lot of bears out there who think that, like, you know, the, you know everything's, the sky's falling and blah, blah, blah. And, like. You have the central, you know, Jerome Powell's fucking everything up, and you know, there's no, there's not going to be a deal, and it's like Trump, Trump's tweeting to to pump the market. Are you allowed to drop the f bomb in here? If I wish I'd known that. It is an irreverent podcast. (laughs) Um, I don't know how much of this we'll keep, but um, way to end us on a high note, JP. Um, Hey, we want to give a shout out again to Redwood Logistics. Thanks so much for your support. Uh, great to have everybody on here, and we are bringing it to you each and every week. As always, we go into more detail about each of the topics we've talked about today on our website, FreightWaves.com. We will continue to publish this podcast weekly, so be sure to subscribe to What the Truck on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Also, make sure to leave us a review to let us know what you think of our new podcast. That'll do it for today. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week on What the the Truck. Truck.